and uh, the 2009 uh, European Not George Bush Award goes to Barack Obama. I'm Jeff Horwich, it's In The Loop, and you know, I had some whole other spiel planned to start the show, uh, but this Nobel Peace Prize thing, uh, oddly enough, didn't see that coming. Uh, it's the award for uh, being Barack Obama, basically, and I think even if you're a fan of Barack Obama here uh, in the U.S., the reaction is generally kind of, come on, you know? Jail dissidents, uh, people who have toiled in obscurity under threat of death to improve human rights or, or end wars all over the world, and Barack Obama. And I almost feel bad for him, because I'm sure he knows this as well as anybody. And how weird is it that getting the Nobel Peace Prize would basically be like a distraction that you, you just don't need right now? now the rationale is not crazy, you know, that just by being who he is and bringing a new attitude to the world. He's improving the climate. That's sort of the the key word in quotes here. They've been using the climate for international relations. But there's still a lot of open questions there, not the least of which uh, Afghanistan, which we'll uh, visit later, and Iran, which actually is where we're going to start today. Last week, we had a little musical fun with uh, the Iranian diplomatic style, or lack thereof. And today, we're going to follow that up. We're putting in a call to a woman named Naj. Uh, goes by just one name, keeps her anonymity for reasons you'll understand. Uh, she lives in Canada, but she grew up in Iran, still has lots of family and contacts there. She writes a great blog about the country. It's called Neo Resistance, and we've had her on once before. Uh, she's got a great way of helping analyze what is going on with Iran. So we'll talk. Hello. Hi, Naj. This is Jeff Horwich calling from In The Loop. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? Good. I'm doing well. Thanks again for taking some time for our show. You're welcome. Just the last week or two, most of the news about Iran has been related to uh, their nuclear facilities and, uh, you know, are they building a secret nuclear arsenal? Are we uh, engaged now in some more serious talks with them? You Mm -hmm. say in the description of your blog on on the site that the nuclear issue is a red herring. Yes. What do you mean by that? Is it a red herring for... For whom and how? For everybody. For everybody. I really don't think that Iran's nuclear issue is a big problem. Um, I don't think technologically they have been sanctioned and they have been sabotaged in their in their facilities so much. And they are on the watch, uh, you know, even this new facility, the atomic agency and the intelligence um, agencies of the U.S. and Israel, they have been aware of this. So the fact that it's just coming out in the news is coinciding with Ahmadinejad's um, attendance in New York. And it is another one of those devices that he's using for uh, the chess game that he's playing against the world. Well, it feels, of course, to anybody who you know does not want to spark off nuclear conflict anywhere, uh, like a very, very serious issue. Uh, I was just reading this morning a new issue of Newsweek. I don't know if you've seen the new issue of Newsweek, but a big cover story about how we might engage or not engage Iran uh, on this nuclear question. And I just want to sort of run the three scenarios that they float uh, by you and sort of get your impressions. And and Mm -hmm. the first two we might be able to easily dispense with, I think, at least the first one, which is uh, just out-and-out military action, an Israeli strike, an American strike, to take out anything we might be concerned with nuclear-wise. How do you imagine that that would play out as a strategy? Oh, this would be the worst-case scenario. These people, they are capable of running um, asymmetric wars. 
you know, if such an attack is going to happen, then then I expect Afghanistan and Iraq extended to to the entire Middle East and maybe to Europe and North America. I mean, it's going to achieve nothing other than undermining this democratic movement that's happening in Iran. Beginning from the premise, as you said, that uh, the nuclear threat is largely imagined or trumped up at the very least. Mm-hmm. Right. Scenario number two, all-out engagement with the Iranian government to really begin opening up, say, look, we're going to put the past behind us. We realize that, you know, you run things differently and we might not like that, but we have to talk with you. How, how would that work? I consider this to be the best option right now, but I think um, that the American and the Western negotiators need to be playing their cards carefully in a sense that while they're negotiating with Iran on nuclear issue, at the same time, they have to be pressing them on their human rights record. Balancing these two together is not going to be a very easy task, and I understand I appreciate the difficulties of this approach. But right it legitimates now. the uh, Ahmadinejad uh, government, doesn't it, to, mm-hmm. to dive in and begin talking with them? I would think, given that you're, you don't seem to be a great fan of his, that uh, that might not be so agreeable to you. Well, of course it's not, but at the same time, you know, you don't uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater. So mm-hmm. I think the third option that you're going to talk about, well, actually, let's let's talk about your third option. Sure, and, and sure, I would... because, because as the article goes, uh, it, it dispenses with that engagement uh, option and, and says what we really need to do is basically enter into a sort of a Cold War style containment, continue to make life difficult for the government there. Make them uh, pariahs, ostracize them until the government changes. No, no, this is this is what's been happening before, and I don't think it has produced any result. I think it's something that actually empowers this government because it gives them the position of the victim. I think engaging this regime, uh, that's going to put a big question mark on this image of uh, Ahmadinejad as being the... Um, the messiah of the oppressed of the world and the anti-imperialist and is going to lose his bases in the, you know, in the rest of the Middle East. And then we can take care of him internally. On our show last week, we uh, spent some time and, and played around with the notion of sort of the, the message coming from Iran, especially with regard to uh, nuclear issues, that it mm-hmm. seems so inconsistent and, and so very difficult to interpret. Uh, are they mm-hmm. working with us? Are they working against us? Why, what... What's happening here? What do you think is is the strategy, and why is it so uh, seemingly erratic from where we're sitting? <laughs> I think it's erratic yeah, no matter where you're sitting. I think even inside the government, nobody knows what's going on. We have the judiciary system that's going against the military, the military that's going against the parliament, the parliament that's going against all of them. I think Ahmadinejad is trying to sort of catch some fish from these muddy waters. What, what do you mean by the phrase, uh, catch some fish from muddy waters? <laughs> we have, it's, it's actually a Persian uh, phrase that uh-huh. um, you can muddy the waters and then benefit from that. So he's, he's trying to take advantage of chaos. Hmm. I don't know if you have an equivalent for this in English. but That works in English. I'm going yeah. to start using that. <laughs> catch some fish from these muddy waters. It, feel, it, sound, it feels very kind of erudite. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's a good one to pull out at, at parties. Uh, mm-hmm. These talks that uh, happened recently between uh, the U.S. and Iran and uh, will presumably resume, I think, at the end of this month, mm-hmm. they're framed, at least from the U.S. side, they're framed around the nuclear issue. Uh, mm-hmm. Given that, that, as you said, you feel it's a red herring, do you still feel like the talks are worthwhile? Yes, 
I think I think they are. I think uh, Iran is going to give um, concessions on its uh, nuclear development. I think at the same time it's going to press the U.S. for pressing Israel to to disarm. And if you disarm the whole region of nuclear weapons, then they would say that well, this was our objective, and then we achieved it. So everybody is going to end up as a winner. What the Iranian uh, regime right now wants is some form of legitimacy. This nuclear issue is a bargaining chip, and uh, Iraq and Afghanistan are bargaining chips. They are modeling themselves after China, and they're just playing the game. So, Well, Naj, thank you for your passion in following all this. Uh, sure, I know it comes naturally to you, but we're, we're glad to know you, and it's been good to talk with you again. Thank you. Naj's blog is called Neo Resistance. I highly recommend you check it out. You can find it at aranfacts.blogspot.com. And what could more naturally follow a discussion of the Iranian nuclear threat, a serious conversation about international relations, than for us to uh, oh so briefly dip into that other item that has so thoroughly dominated the news and captivated the public's attention, well, part of the public anyway, in recent days. Uh, I have a little story that I would like to tell you and the home viewers as well. Do you feel like a story? Heck yeah, I feel like a story if it's going to be that one. Now, I don't know if you watched that or not, uh, if you didn't. Good for you. Uh, but I did. And what I'm about to uh, do for you here, it, it has its roots deep in social networking. So bear with me for just a moment. Uh, a colleague of mine here, a fellow host, felt he needed to respond in a private email to me to something that I had tweeted earlier in the week. Uh, why we didn't just have it out on Twitter uh, like everybody else does. I don't know. Uh, and then there were a few of you who responded to basically the same thing that I'd posted about the same time on Facebook. And my question, uh, harmless enough, was, doesn't it seem to you that the other late night hosts are going suspiciously light on the Letterman thing. And I didn't make this up. I posted a link to an AP story that was basically asking the same thing. And the gist of the response that I got, I guess I would characterize it as, um, I can't believe we're even talking about this David Letterman thing. God. To which I say, I mean, we'll get back to saving the planet and feeding the hungry and all that stuff, but... I don't know. This is interesting. Certainly, it's interesting enough for a, a post on Twitter, uh, which is a that's a low bar, people. Uh, so I was turning all this over in my head, the Letterman thing, and I have a hard time letting this stuff go. It started to turn into kind of like a Monty Python uh, kind of a deal. Uh, and since it happens to be this year, my good buddy Sandin tells me the 40th anniversary of the debut of Monty Python. I followed that instinct. And this is the Strange love child that resulted. Though I might wish I could say that I'm a better man, I admit me ears perk up at David Letterman. Though it smacks of culture rot, empty tawdriness it's not, and don't think ill of me for thinking that it's worth a moment's thought. A large portion of the world quite plainly love it. Another batch insist we float above it, Twixt the tabloid TV slobs and the public radio snobs, what a gulf between the lowbrows and the holier-than-all-thous. Look, nobody deserves to be extorted, and it's not like I'm offended he cavorted. Just because I give some weight to the letterman debate, don't look at me as if I said I follow John and Kate. I don't even know who that is. People point out that he's not a politician. There's no broken public trust in his position. Yet he's a major public figure, maybe something even bigger. It's quite a perch from whence to shape the public disposition. 
Day in, day out, his job's to tease and poke. Chart the foibles of the famous wealthy folk. Can he do that nightly dance if when he had the chance? He opened up his worldwide pants for a December-May romance. It's a good rhyme. Yes, to sleep around a bit might just be funny. But when you're the boss who's making gobs of money, even flirting in the workplace makes you look like quite a jerk face. It's no newsflash you have sex, just don't do it on your decks. At work, you know. Though Dave himself has milked it for effect, his late-night chums have been quite circumspect. A foil from some other endeavour, actor, senator, whatever. They milk it like a swollen golden scent from heaven heifer. Hey, that's all I got on this on through. And I know that that was rough on some of you. If it made you feel uneasy, sleazy, greasy, kind of queasy, you're in luck we now return you to a serious interview about what Paul Schaefer knew. No, we wouldn't do that to you unless we uh, got the actual Paul Schaefer. Then that'd be too cool to pass up. Uh, has anybody ever found a weirder way to say, don't judge me? As usual, there's a video of that sucker up on our Facebook page, loopfacebook.net. But we got some good stuff coming, so let's keep moving. In fact, I'm going to take a moment here to uh, just address the number of you, by which I mean maybe a handful of folks who pointed out over recent months that, you know, we tend to dwell sometimes in the uh, on the dark side, in the negative aspects of this world around us, uh, partly because that's where the, the fun and tension and conflict uh, are. But uh, let's take a moment for some good news, because there is some good news out there. You just got to dig for it a little bit. In fact, this past week, we got maybe the best news uh, that one could expect to receive. And this, of course, is that the, uh, the Earth will not be obliterated and the human race uh, potentially wiped out 26 years from now. And isn't that wonderful? You know, there was this, this asteroid called uh, Apophis, and it was going to swing dangerously close to the planet. In fact, there was a relatively, by which I mean very weak, but relatively strong chance that it could actually smack into Earth in 2036. Well, scientists have downgraded now, and that's the that's the word they're using, downgraded, like a corporate bond, uh, the possibility that Apophis is going to slam into the planet uh, from 1 in 45,000 to now just 1 in 250,000. So, that ought to help all of us uh, sleep a little better uh, tonight and every night maybe for the next uh, 26 years till it uh, safely whizzes by. And some other good news, people might have considered equally unlikely uh, even a week ago, health insurance reform could actually lower the federal deficit. And actually, that's not totally new. The Baucus bill was originally supposed to do that, but now the uh, Congressional Budget Office weighs in and says after all the changes they've made, it's going to trim the deficit by even more, which I admit sits a little unevenly on the brain. I'm not entirely sure how you spend $830 billion and, and come out in the black, but I guess they get enough uh, trims and taxes to make it work. Now, I don't know if this is especially good news where we're going next, uh, but anything about Afghanistan that doesn't involve uh, death, uh, crooked election, and the fact that we might be losing the war uh, could maybe feel like good news. Certainly been a rough week in Afghanistan, uh, a number of troop deaths, a big Taliban attack just today in Kabul. So we were digging around in our contacts and correspondence for, I don't know, someone new to talk to in Afghanistan, something a little bit different. And we found some comments from Captain Andrew Lane. He's with the Georgia Army National Guard, 48th Brigade, and he's stationed at the moment in Afghanistan. Captain Lane, thanks very much for talking with us. Where specifically in Afghanistan are you uh, at the moment? 
I'm about an hour's flight south of Kabul. I'm normally in Kabul itself, uh, just to the east of the actual city. So you're known uh, in your unit as Captain Planet. Tell everybody how you got the uh, the honorable nickname Captain Planet. Mainly because of my uh, extreme commitment and drive to reduce, reuse, recycle. I'm not totally alone, actually. There's a, a good. There's probably four or five of us. We share a lot of the same ideas. I'm probably the most the most practicing person of our group. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a close second. Um, her name is Colonel Planet. I have another name, but she's from the state of Arizona. And Colonel French is her name. And Colonel French, this is a, a colleague of yours where you go by Captain Planet. She goes by Colonel Planet, right? Which means she, she outranks you on the planetary scale? Yeah, she does outrank me. I call her ma'am and say yes, ma'am, when she asks me a question. I know, ma'am. <laughs> and, um, but but we're, we're, uh, she's like a big sister to me. So you're very committed to uh, environmental sustainability and doing what you can in your daily life. And uh, I would imagine that that is a commitment that most people just have to set aside when they go off to war. But you haven't, right? Tell me about some of the, uh, some of the concerns that you've highlighted and some of the things you've been trying to do. I think some of the things I've done is just to, to refuse to use disposable cutlery and dishes in the dining facility. I, I, I've caught around... Tupperware, and I'm now gym water bottles. How common is the disposable cutlery, and, and how much do you throw away over in Afghanistan? Well, that's just a substantial amount of garbage. Uh, it's, it's quite staggering, actually. Paper plates, plastic utensils, paper cups, starving cups. And this is with every meal that every soldier has uh, in that camp, right? Yes. Do they give you a hard time, uh, your, your fellow soldiers, for carrying your own, your own Tupperware and using that for your food there in camp? Some soldiers do laugh or, or find it funny, but a lot of soldiers actually comment it's a great idea because it's, uh, as you know, Tupperware comes with a lid, so it turns into, into a to-go plate whenever I want to, mm-hmm. and I don't have to worry about it getting crushed, per se. It's actually Tupperware brand Tupperware, so it can stand up to some punishment. Well, that'd be a good endorsement for them, I guess, to know that uh, it's, it's the Tupperware of choice for soldiers on the battlefield in Afghanistan. And when you served in Iraq before, the practices of the Army were actually more sustainable than what you're seeing in Afghanistan, correct? Yes, in the dining facilities, yes. They always have real plates and real silverware, and they were doing it in Iraq. I'm sure we can do it here. In Afghanistan, the folks who worked in the chow halls, most of them are from Afghanistan. They were from right down the street. And uh, they serve the food, they cook a lot of the food. I'm sure that those folks can wash dishes. When we have um, ample water, it seems, I know it, it is sort of desertish and cobble, but they pressure wash the sidewalk every day in front of my office. So they can certainly pressure wash uh, the dishes and throw away a lot less. Right. Well, what about something that's so routine for us uh, here in the States and was routine for you, I'm sure, back in uh, back home in Atlanta? Recycling. Do you recycle in Afghanistan? We're trying to, to get that on board. We can recycling to give the Afghanis so they can you know, make money. There's no sense in throwing it away or trying to incinerate it somehow. When uh, Obviously, they can take it to a scrap metal yard in, in Kabul and uh, try to profit on that. If, uh, as you want to, you know, you're able to cut down on waste and uh, start using, you know, reusable plates and silverware and, uh, and cups and all that, and if you're able to get recycling going and be more sustainable as a military force on the ground in Afghanistan, how does that help us win the war? Well, actually, the recycling could stimulate the Afghan economy and uh, a happy Afghan is an Afghan less likely to attack our troops, less likely to be our enemy. And, uh, of course, if you weigh the – I did the math. If, if for the past six years this child has been functioning more or less, um, and we paid a half a cent per each one of those settings, the paper plate and plastic cutware, that we would have 
at this point, paid more than $100,000. Obviously, we could save a lot of money on transportation costs, mm-hmm. logistical costs. It would, again, save our you know, taxpayer money, and I just think it's the right thing to do. Well, Captain Lane, uh, in the context of all of this barrage of, uh, you know, the unfortunately typical news we've been hearing out of Afghanistan lately, it's been refreshing to talk with you about this stuff. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. The real-life Captain Planet there, Andrew Lane, who's a captain with the uh, Georgia Army National Guard. He's in Afghanistan at the moment. And aside from being an environmental crusader, his actual job in the Army is to investigate accidents and determine how to avoid them in the future, which probably would not really have qualified under our good news uh, premise here, but maybe we'll have to call him back sometime and talk about that. Now, I guess we are going to delve back into the uh, dark side here in a way, uh, but it should be fun. And there's no news peg for this. It's just something that Sandin and I noticed this week, and we were kind of uh, tossing back and forth, and I thought it was kind of cool, so we wanted to share it with you. This team of folks in the geography department at Kansas State University uh, set out recently to use a bunch of data from the U.S. Census and other places to map the seven deadly sins across the United States. And just a reminder for those of you who might not know these by heart, in alphabetical order, uh, envy, gluttony, greed, lust, pride, sloth, and wrath. Good stuff. Mitchell Steimers uh, is a Ph.D. candidate in geography at uh, Kansas State, and he was one of the folks who worked on that project. Mitchell, thanks very much for talking with us about it for a few minutes. No problem at all. So, first of all, why did you do it? What was the inspiration for uh, the Seven Deadly Sins maps? The inspiration really comes from the classical idea of wanting to map something that, you know, is that... I guess not, I don't want to say ancient, but that, you know, old in context. And uh, really, that's about it. Fun was a lot of the lot of the impetus for it, just something fun to present. And uh, Las Vegas is the, the convention, or where the convention was that we first presented it at. So, you know, what better place to present a map or a series of maps concerning sin, so-called sin city. How about wrath? That sounds like a like a bad one. Uh, how did you how did you calculate uh, the sin of wrath across the U.S.? Wrath, that one's, uh, that one's a lot easier than a few of the other ones. Wrath and envy really were fairly straightforward. Wrath was just uh, violent crime, so we looked at assaults, uh, rape, and murder per capita. So we're seeing um, across the southeast, I guess, looks like a, a kind of a dangerous place to be. New Mexico, am I right? Uh, yep. Stands out. And what looks to be like the California Central Valley, kind of Fresno and Sacramento. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big meth production area. In that Central Valley. Yeah, I mean, you'd, we would have to, you'd have to do some, uh, you know, extensive or some additional research to try to uh, you know, see if there's an actual tie there, but that's, you know, certainly a possibility. I mean, there's, there, there's no real way to map out the motivation for the crime. You know, the, the UCR just says what the crime was and where it was located. All right, let's talk about uh, gluttony. That's an interesting one. It kind of looks like uh, kind of this area in the Virginia and North Carolina coasts. And then there's this weird, like, deserty part of Texas. And I was trying to see, there's not, there aren't even any kind of big cities there. Where did the gluttony uh, measure come from? Uh, gluttony presented the biggest problem, and it was mostly due to time constraints. We were doing the best we could to get obesity data mm-hmm. by the county. But what we ended up doing for that is the number of limited service eating establishments, which basically just means fast food type uh, restaurants per capita. And it really didn't show... Uh, much of a pattern. Future iterations of the project, we are going to hopefully try to redo gluttony, basically, to use a, a better metric. Lust, I want to talk about. Uh, Lust, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> first of all, uh, how did you measure it? That one, we caught quite a bit of flack for that one, more than any of the others, really. Uh, Lust, we measured using uh, the total number of per capita sexually transmitted diseases. Um, we used four of them. 
mm. actually five, I'm sorry, uh, AIDS and HIV, gonorrhea, syphilis, and chlamydia. I can see why that might be a little controversial. People are, you know, posting on blog comments that that doesn't really get at the heart of of lust. That's more a lack of education or a lack of contraception, mm-hmm. protection, et cetera. Uh, the Deep South stands out, uh, a big chunk of South Dakota, uh, which maybe isn't too surprising if you're in that area. It's a lower lower income part of the state, I believe. Uh, yes, yes. There's still some useful information, I think, to be gleaned from that, I guess, whether you label it as lust or, or something else. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you want to change the label to, uh, you know, sexually transmitted disease hotspots, then it certainly would make sense. Um, but again, it's show me where there's a database that has data uh, that would say how much one has lustful thoughts during the day. Mm-hmm. We have that data for uh, Jimmy Carter, but I suppose not really okay. for anybody else. Okay, so that's one. We got one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do wind up with this Im- impression, looking at uh, the overall measure of, of sin, uh, that the Bible Belt, oddly enough, would be measured as uh, one of the most sinful places in the country uh, by your by your measures. Uh, in the Midwest, uh, we're sitting here in the Twin Cities, um, the Midwest comes off very well, including, you know, this kind of Look for the right word here. I don't know, like chaste swath that runs down through Kentucky and and West Virginia. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe maybe that's the new Bible Belt. Could be. Yeah, it's possible. Definitely looking at the all of the maps except for for the most part, uh, really greed. Greed is really the only one where the South doesn't have a major hotspot. I think I uh, neglected greed along the way here. Uh, before we let you go, tell me about that one. Uh, greed was calculated using income compared to the number of inhabitants that were below the poverty line. So, for example, a county that would have high income per capita, but yet a large number of inhabitants below the poverty level, we label that as being greed, since you have a large number of, you know, quote-unquote, wealthy or, or rich people in a community, and then a large number of poor. So the rich, in a sense, not giving back to the poor. Why do you think it was that doing the project the way that you did it, measuring sin, rubbed so many people the wrong way? I think it's just, first of all, a lot of people would maybe look at the maps and, and go off the assumption that we were attacking this or coming at this problem from a religious standpoint to make a religious statement. And again, that wasn't the case and never intended to be the case. Um, a lot of them do come at us from that standpoint. Well, this, you, you can't measure by this metric. It's not what you know, the Church really believes, that things, a lot, you know, things along those lines. In setting out to try and uh, capture the data in a way that non geography PhD candidates can wrap their head around, though, you've also created something that uh, what teachers have been requesting copies of the data, right, to work with their students? Yeah, absolutely. We had a professors, a professor at the college level and all, you know, a few at the high school level also would express some interest in using the data for their classes just to show the wide breadth of things that you can really map out concerning human nature. It's another, and I think it's a good example, of how you can use geography and how you can use spatial analysis to really elicit patterns they're really hard to get a hold of. A good chance to show kids that statistics can be both fun and piss people off. Yeah, at the same exact time, too. Mitchell, it's been good to talk with you. Thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks a lot. That's Mitchell Steimers talking with me from Manhattan, Kansas, where he's getting his Ph.D. in geography at Kansas State University. You can find those maps all over the place. Just do a Google search for Seven Deadly Sins maps or something like that. Or you can just head to uh, our website, intheloopshow.net. Look uh, down among our recent segments, and we will point you there. Sandon Totten has just entered the studio. Sandon, open and close the door so it's as if you're just walking in. Time for a Scribbit cast. Scribbit! You got like a Q-Bert thing going on in your sweater today.
Uh, yeah, it's my tribute to video games. Nifty and really MC Escher, blocky. something like that. So the Scribbit is this deal on our website. People go and they submit questions that they uh, want you, in particular, to take a run at. And today we're going to kind of, um, it's kind of a cleanup Scribbit cast. Yeah, we're going right? to just go through a couple here that uh, have been sitting around waiting to uh, get answered. So we're going to have a, a triple Scribbit bill for you Interesting, today. but... Uh, Random. Yeah, random. News-ish, but not necessarily newsy. Newsy enough, I'd say. Okay, uh, what's I up mean, first? this first one involves uh, someone very newsy. This, uh, this Scribbit uh, suggestion here says, Does anyone else think that Tim Geithner looks eerily like Woody Guthrie? Of course, Tim Geithner, Treasury Secretary. Mm-hmm. Woody Guthrie, uh, famous depression ballad singer. What does Woody Guthrie look I mean, I don't know what he looks like. I have pictures here, okay. luckily. So, we're going to start with a picture here of Tim Geithner. Mm-hmm. And a picture of Woody Guthrie. What do you think? Yeah, they they do have a similarity. Well, they both got big foreheads, uh, you know, pointy jaws. Yeah, well, they have a certain intense look to them as well. We'll have to put these pictures up on Facebook or something. Totally, so totally. Take a look. Uh, but these pictures that you got, they both are just like, they look kind of like pained, like the weight of the world. Uh, in one case, the financial system in Wall Street and on the other uh, I don't know sorrows the, of the, the American farm workers people, of America yeah. well, are here's, bearing down on them here's my thought I mean this they both have the look of uh, of men who've seen some trouble and uh, I put together a little clip here just to illustrate that point okay but as I said in my opening statement these were these were careless mistakes they were avoidable mistakes and I take full responsibility for them it takes a worried man to sing a worried song it takes a worried man of course, uh, Timothy Geithner there, uh, trying to explain away his tax troubles, and uh, Woody Guthrie just talking about troubles in general. Did Did you note this in your research that apparently uh, Tim Geithner was named by People Magazine one of its 100 beautiful people? No, the and most recent time what? they did that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. How could that have escaped our notice? It was somewhat controversial among people who. Uh, Follow that that list among people um, who have eyes. <laughs> I mean, he's not well, a bad-looking guy, but I wouldn't say he's one of the most beautiful people I've ever seen. Well, here's the thing: his brother is a vice president at People Magazine. Mm. It looks a little suspicious, sketchy. Yeah, one person here suggests that actually he looks more like uh, Beavis. <laughs> this <laughs> actually, picture I'm looking at. Yeah, I see. Right I now. see. If he had blonde hair, I could kind of see it in profile. <laughs> but uh, does that make Bernanke kind of like his butthead? Certainly something to ponder. Uh, <laughs> and if that were a question a listener had brought up, we might look into it. But because it's not, we will leave it alone. Moving right along. Yes. And these, of course, are questions from uh, our listeners left on, on the website. And the next one. The um, next one. What do we got? Someone asked, what can you do with a thousand paper cranes? Oh, not a drunken sailor. No. Okay. That's a whole other problem. But a thousand paper cranes, what can you do with them? Well, uh, the thousand paper cranes is actually, uh, this is not just pulled out of anywhere. It's, it's a, a very... Specific number of cranes that is used for a very specific thing. Well, as, as legend is told in Japanese culture, the person who folds a thousand paper cranes is granted one wish. That is Harry Finicaro, and he actually folded a thousand paper cranes. How long does it take? It took him, well, he said he, he was working on it for about six hours a day for several months, just getting home from work, he'd start folding the cranes. He would get these, like, sores on his hands. It's not for the weak to fold a thousand oh, paper cranes. Oh, Harry, what? I know. Why? Well, in Japan, uh, you know, the crane is a very sort of mystical, powerful animal, you know, with, with lots of magic. So uh, I saw that, Kung Fu Panda. Was there a crane in that? I think so. Or was, was that a stork? 
Uh, I, I didn't anyway, see anyway, yes, I, I believe. So did Harry. He folded these with a very specific wish in mind. So my wish was that my girlfriend at the time would marry me. And so I spent all this time folding the cranes, brought her into our bedroom, and she had her eyes closed. You know, I, I gave her the story of what they meant. When she opened her eyes, she saw them all over the floor, all over the bed, hanging from the ceiling. That's when I, I told her what my wish was, and that's when I brought out the ring, etc. And uh, did it come true? Yes, of course. All right, way to she go. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. It's a good thing you had those origami skills, uh, otherwise you might still be a bachelor. Yes, yes. And yet so many men out there with substantial origami skills are still bachelors. <laughs> it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't add it up. It takes Santa. the skills and the dedication to make the thousand cranes. I think that's, you know, the key. Sure. So what do you do with the thousand paper cranes? Uh, at this point, Harry and his fiancée were thinking possibly using them uh, in the wedding invites. Like unfolding them and uh, yeah, or, writing you know, on them? attaching them to the, to the wedding invites or, you know, sending out uh, little paper cranes as gifts to people. Oh, very... Um... Martha Stewart. Okay, thanks to whoever submitted that question. These roll in anonymously for the well, most part, Well, not right? the next one. The next oh. one we actually know came from Brian Van Gelder. Of guy who posts on our Facebook page from time to time fame. Yeah, that's yes. the one. Okay, Brian, thank you very much. Brian says, 16-year-old girls now legally allowed to dance in Rhode Island strip clubs? Why? Uh-huh. Which is, yeah, why is a good question. One. Is it, it true, first of all? It, it, it Well... It's true. Fact-checking. It's okay. true, sadly. It's not uh, a sort of thing that was now legally allowed. There was a loophole, and it's, it's a really bizarre loophole, in that because there was no law saying it's illegal for 16-year-olds to strip in strip clubs at Rhode Island, they couldn't actually charge any of these strip clubs with a crime when they found out that one of them actually had a 16-year-old girl dancing there. So people were... Incensed, I would think, or, or maybe not in Rhode Island, which is got a it's got a seedy uh, reputation. Right. Well, I, I spoke to uh, Meredith Waterman, who uh, no offense to Rhode Island listeners is uh, she's the press person for a state representative there, and yeah, she said you know people have this opinion of Rhode Island, but it's not like uh, they wanted sixteen year olds to have a new career opportunity. They're working really hard to make this illegal. There's actually some legislation pending right now, and hopefully uh, before the session's up, they will uh, no longer have uh, this loophole. But the the odd thing is they actually have some uh, pretty decent rules about minors working. So if these strippers in the strip club had danced past 1130 on a weeknight, then they could charge the strip club for the Curfew still applies. Very interesting. Yeah. Hmm. So, uh, Brian, small window of opportunity uh, if you really wanted to go see that, but I, I don't think you do. Colorful you set of uh, scribbit questions today. Yeah, well, this is uh, this is our audience, Jeff. This what you... is what they want to know. Yeah, and uh, you can find that scribbit, submit new questions to us at intheloopshow.net. Sandin Totten, our producer in the Qbert sweater. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, anytime, Jeff. Scribbit. All right, it's been fun, but we've come to the end of our journey for today. In the Loops, produced by Sandin and me. We get some help from our BFF. Uh, that's the title she prefers, she tells us. It's not what's on her business card, but we'll use it. Anna Weggle, because it's true. That's why we'll use it. Um, and I'll make one quick mention of uh, something before I go here. We've got a question floating out there. We've got responses from any number of you about how where you live or where you have lived has shaped the kind of person that you are. And I didn't do anything with it on the show today. We're, we're still uh, sort of looking through those. We're going to figure out what to, what to make of it, uh, just to give you a little update on that. And if you have a good response to that and you haven't responded yet, 
please uh, go to our website, fill out the uh, fill out the form, send us an email, whatever. You can call right into our voicemail, 1-800. That's not 1-800. What am I talking about? It's on your dime, <laughs> uh, unfortunately. Uh, 651-228-4886 or 651-CATGUT6 if you need a way to remember. Just call in, leave a message for us there, and uh, we're sorting through all that stuff, and we'll see what we can make of it maybe for uh, next week or the week beyond. And... That's it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Be sure to, uh, if you like it, leave a review of the show on iTunes or on our Facebook page and tell a friend. And we can't ask any more than that. I'm Jeff Horwich. I'll talk to you next week.